0: Thanks, Kyle. Um, you guys, I'm really excited about this series. I, um, uh, this, the, the subtitle of the book, Lori's book, Love Without Walls, is uh, becoming or learning to be a church in the world for the world. That is to say that we're not just a community of people who gather to learn some stuff on Sunday and sing some songs and then kind of go back to our life and sort of never let anybody, like the world just sort of functions and then we hide out and then kind of try to keep as isolated as possible from the world. In other words, what we're doing at Mariner's Church is And the story of Love Without Walls is that we are a group of people who are committed to seeing the world be made different. That this is a subversive, revolutionary army of people who are um, released into the world, armed with love and compassion and humility. And um, this Love Without Walls series is something I'm really excited about. Um, Last year, maybe two years ago, I brought a friend of mine to church during this series. And I didn't realize this was kind of the same kind of series, same idea. We're talking about our church's sort of intention to be outwardly focused and moving towards the community with love and compassion. And, um, you know, it was, it was the same kind of deal. And I brought him that weekend. And it was one of those weekends, like, if you ever bring your friends to church, I know some of you are the person who brought a friend to church this weekend. And you're, like, praying all these things, like, okay, don't. Please don't make a big, like, giant thing about money today. And please, please, whoever's speaking, just be not lame. Whatever. I don't have to be awesome. Just be not lame. Because I risked a lot to bring this person, so as someone who actually brings people to church, sometimes I, I mean I, I'm sitting next to this guy going, oh my gosh, I brought him on a weekend where they're going to ask him to serve, and then they're going to do this. They're going to ask they're going to ask people to support the ministry financially, and I'm like, this is a nightmare. This is a horrible thing. And they, the Kenton and Lori talk about the church's heart for the poor in, um, in our community, in the world. And how the church is moving at these things. And I'm like, oh no, here comes the big, you know, do you guys want to be a part of this? And, you know, we need you to help support this. Whatever, God's inviting you to be a part of this journey. It's all that stuff. And I'm like, here comes the money thing. And I'm like looking over at my friend to try and rescue him or try to plug his ears a little or something I can do. And he's got tears streaming down his face. And he goes, is this what your church is all about? Yeah. Oh, I really, I, he's, he, he's like, I want to support this. And he gets out his checkbook. I'm like, you don't, ha- you don't have, I'm like trying to stop him. Like, you don't have to, you don't have to, this not for you, it's for everybody. I was like, he just was like, this is what I, re- this is great. This is what the church is about. I want to be about this. So with that in mind, this is the first part of that series. We're going to talk about it for three weeks. I would encourage you to bring your friends. Because what they're going to see about Mariner's Church, this is a church that is not just inwardly focused, just sort of isolated little capsule of people, learning about stuff and then forgetting about the rest of the people in the world. It's about, this is the church who really does care about, uh, through people like you, about the world around us. And so it's a great opportunity to bring friends to be a part of this series. And so we're gonna learn how to be a church in the world for the world. And it will be messy and it will be challenging. And uh, in fact, this week, we're gonna create a lot of questions that won't have answers. And that's partly intentional. But throughout the rest of the series, it's just gonna be great. As we fill in some of the blanks, you're gonna hear from some other people and some ministries that are going on, how lives are being changed through the volunteers and the heart of people like you in our community. So before we do that, before we begin, would you pray with me? And then we'll see what God has for us today. Jesus, we uh, come before you. We acknowledge that you are at work in us even before we show up. We acknowledge that you are already here in this place and that your desire for us isn't that we would simply sort of find our way in here and sort of hole up and hide out, but that we would be encouraged and challenged and provoked. To move back out into the world with intention and love, compassion. Lord, we pray that your story of love for us would spill over out of our lives onto the people around us. Lord, we hold still for a moment. We just pause. Lord, we ask that you would speak to us and that in some way we would take on your attitude, your humility, such that we would hear you speak to us. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Uh, Now, let me ask you a question. Some Some of you may have studied or know about Greek mythology and the sort of Greek god, you know, pantheon, all that kind of stuff. Some of you just saw Clash of the Titans, the recent one. Some of you saw the original one, which is far superior uh, with claymation, you know, scorpions and stuff. It was like, you know, it was awesome. Uh, but let me ask you, when, you when, those, when those movies or some of your past learning describe the gods, how are they described? What are the gods like? Just throw some stuff out. Angry. The gods are angry. Yes, very much so. What else? Wait over here, Someone? They're, they're, cra- they're crazy. Okay, yeah, what else? What's that? Narcissistic. narcissistic. You get the SAT bonus word for today. Good job. All right, nice work. Narcissistic. What else? What? Distant. They live up on a mountain somewhere. Yeah, what else? Manipulative. manipulative. It's hard for me to say that word, manipulative. Okay, good. What else? Capricious. <laughs> Seriously, you're trying to outdo the other guy with narcissistic. <laughs> oh, yeah, well, they're capricious deal with that, narcissist. Uh, what else? <laughs> what else are they? Anybody over here? Vengeful, which is like a more awesome way of saying angry. Yes. What? They're vain. Yeah, what else? Oxymoronic. You you're might be in the ballpark. That's close. Yeah, you're in the game. We'll put you in the game. Good. What else? Dependent on, dependent on people. Ooh, good. What else? Anything else? Shallow what? False. False. Well, that that covers it. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. (laughs) They're not real. Yeah. Any other thoughts? Ugly. Ugly. Okay. Someone last, I think it was Saturday night, was like, they're old. I'm like, yeah, there's a lot of beards happening, I guess, for whatever reason. But when we ask the question, what is God like, we're asking one of the most important questions in faith. We're asking something really critical because it's not just a conversation. We ask the question, what are gods like or what is God like? We're not asking a question just merely a sort of a theology discussion about, you know, what is this sort of cosmology, you know, we're not asking, that's what we're asking. A question that has profound implications for the way that we actually live. Because in the Bible, what we find is that the objects of people's worship is actually what shapes them into the way that they act and behave. And so when we ask the question. What is God like? We're not just asking, what do we think or know about God? We're not just filling in the blanks about sort of the, all, the important words that also are on the SAT, the omni words. You know, omniscience and omnipresent and all those kind of things. We're asking something different. We're actually asking how we're going to live, about how we behave. If you need a Bible, we're going to be looking at Philippians 2. Some folks are going to pass out Bibles if you need one. If you want to switch on your you know, computer or whatever, your iPhone, your iPad to, you know, Philippians 2 will be there. If you didn't bring any of those things and you're like, i reject that technology, we'll just put it on the screen, which in that case you're sort of interacting with the technology. Anyways, we're going to put it on the screen for you. We're going to talk about this question. What is God like? Because it does shape the way in which we live in a world, particularly one in which we're trying to live as one who would live without walls, who would love without walls. So we're going to start in verse 6 of Philippians chapter 2. If you need a Bible, again, put your hand up. If not, just follow along on the screen. Here we go. Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Sometimes you see this, other translations will say something to be grasped or possessed or held on to. So this is kind of the, Jesus is sometimes referred to as the second Adam. Meaning like there was a man, Adam, which that's how you say Adam in Hebrew. There's a man, Adam, and then there's this second Adam. And there's this, often this comparison between Jesus, the second Adam, Adam and the first Adam. Because the first Adam, what he really wanted to do was hold on to the status of becoming like a God. That's actually the temptation you read in Genesis 3. If you eat this fruit, you will become like God. And there's this grasping for status and power and importance. Only what we see in Jesus is something way different. Who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or held onto or possessed or used for his own advantage. Instead, he wanted to do something else. Jesus apparently wants to release status. One of the most difficult things we could ever do is to have something and then let it go. Have you ever tried to give, like, a three-year-old a toy and then ask him to share it within 20 minutes? You've never seen a tantrum like that in your life. There's a reason why Netflix... Some of you are subscribers. There's a reason why Netflix says try us out for 30 days for free. We're your friend. Because what happens after 30 days of streaming all kinds of cartoons for your kids or documentaries or whatever else or movies and how easy it is, eventually you're just going to go, I want to just keep this going because it's way harder to give it up. In Chicago, the school board tried to do a, um, they, they, they thought they would try a new incentive program, which has proved to be incredibly effective. What they did is they said with a small collection of teachers, they said, here's what we're going to do. We're going to give you your end of the year bonus, the one you would get for having all the students reach a particular standard or percentage of your students reach their standards. We're going to give that to you now. And you sign a contract that says if the certain percentage of your kids don't reach that standard, that you owe us that money back. This is called this is what psychologists call loss aversion. <laughs> and <laughs> they had a phenomenal success rate with this kind of motivation. People once they get used to a way of something, they don't want to get rid of it. And Jesus is, the picture we have of Jesus, remember we're asking the question, who, who, what is God like? Jesus is one who says, I've got all of this Godness stuff in me, but it's not something I'm going to hold on to. I'm going to do something that's kind of crazy, which is in some weird way releasing it. Here's what it says in verse 7. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. The word made himself nothing in the Greek is the word ekenosent, or sometimes this is called the kenosis, which means the emptying of. That there's all this status which Jesus possesses, Jesus, Jesus wasn't a creation of God, Jesus is existing with God, as God, and he surrenders something, gives something up of himself, taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. Now the question of sort of being emptied is kind of a really complicated one. How much did he give up? How much did he retain? What part of he's 100 percent God, 100 percent human being. How does that all work? And it's a really complicated question. I, I want to turn just really quickly to one quote from a New Testament scholar named N.T. Wright, who says it this way: He says, "The decision to become human." and to go all the way along the road of obedience all the way to the cross, this decision was not a decision to stop being divine. it was a decision about what it really meant to be divine." leave that there for just a second. Or not. Or now. Yes. There we go. In other words, what's being said as you read this kind of quote is that when we ask the question, what is God like, God is one who would empty himself of all of the status given to him such that something else might be accomplished. Here's what I mean. We can take that off the screen now. I, um, I coached first grade girls soccer. And um, which that's basically like nothing but nonstop screaming it's pigtails and screaming and pink shoes I mean that's all that it is and Kyle and I both have daughters on the team and uh the other day at practice this is on Monday and we're we have this we have a little you know the, the like I said it's like it, it you guys are screaming I just can't describe this to you it sounds like an air raid siren as soon as the ball is in play I mean, it's just all it's just it's crazy and so what I'll do is sometimes if I just don't know what to do with the girls, they'll just be like, okay, everybody scream. And they'll just scream. And like, it's like they have, to, they have a ball. They like, it's the greatest time in the world, you know? Now, we have a scrimmage, which I, I mentioned this last service, and someone came up to me and goes, did you mean a scrimmage?" And I was like, that's clever. I'm not going to use that. Anyway. Uh, but we're all, we're all getting together, and there's a, the, it's a, we have an uneven number of girls, so I have to play on one of the teams. Now, I'm not a great soccer player, but I'm better than most six-year-old girls. I also coach my son's team. They're third graders. I, maybe I'm not quite as good as those guys. But my, the first grade girls is like, I can take these guys. I can't handle the screaming, but I can take them. So now, when I walk onto the field, it's not like I get the ball and I'm like, oh, you know, and I just start pushing them away. Like, in your face. And I just, you know, line up shots. Oh, I'll get in the way of this. <laughs> ah, Like, I just, I mean, they're these little girls. So I don't walk out there and do that, though I could. Instead, I, I like kind of, oh, the ball's at my feet. It, it might go through my legs if you kick it. Oh, no. Everyone scream. And I run. I mean, this is literally, I mean, I'm not exaggerating. that's how it looks. Oh, and I missed it. Who's going to get it? You know, and they run over there. Good job, Avery. Good job, Leah. Good job, Cozy. I mean, I'm just like, all this like, just everybody try and stay where you're supposed to go. Okay, everybody just swarm on the ball. And I'll run over there now. I mean, that's how I play. Now, I could, I could power up and try to dominate them. I don't lose the ability to do those things, I just don't use it. In other words, there's something else that I want them to be able to learn by me playing in that soccer game. And it isn't just that I could dominate them. I don't have to use all of that power. In other words, I let it go. I empty myself of something I don't need. To, don't choose to use. Jesus never stops being God. It's just like he doesn't use it in that same way. Does that make sense? Same thing's happening here. It's what Jesus is talking about here, or what Paul's talking about, about Jesus. Verse eight. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even on a cross. Now, if you, even if you aren't sure about Jesus, if this is like your first time here, you've never been to a church, whatever it is, my guess is that you know or have some familiarity with the idea that Jesus and a cross are somehow equated. There's something going on, with, there's a connection there. You've seen people wearing crosses, you know, now it's like much cooler to have like a neck tattoo of a cross, like, oh, you must be really serious about your faith. I know, my neck, my neck tattoo. Right? But whatever it is, you have some idea about a cross, What you might not know is this. The cross is, the, is a particularly cruel form of Roman persecution. So cruel, in fact, is the cross that it's not even allowed for Roman citizens to undergo this kind of execution. So that means if a Roman criminal is convicted, they can't put them on the cross. They can only put people who are either slaves or foreigners on a cross. It means it's so bad that not even their own citizens could endure it. For a Jew... The Bible stipulates that someone who's hung on a post is cursed. Deuteronomy 21, you could check it out later. And then Galatians 3.13 repeats it again, the same idea. That there is a curse upon a person who is hung on a post to die. There is no lower status in all the world than for a Jewish man to be hung on a cross and die. Jesus, who being in the very nature God... Didn't hold on to it. Instead, he emptied himself, becoming obedient even to death on a cross. Verse 9. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Now, let's paint kind of a picture just to help you understand a little bit. The the sort of hymn that Paul writes here to the church in Philippi starts out kind of on this high point. Jesus is sort of, he's God. and doesn't consider it something to be grasped. So he empties himself even to the point of death and you kind of get this parabola shape. And then, having died this criminal's death, this shameful criminal's death, every tongue, everybody will bow, everybody knows that he's God. His name is better than all the other. Does that make sense? You have this parabola shape. Now, what's interesting, though, is this. There seems to be that there is the result of this kind of crazy obedience and humility is that God elevates him. And then there's this kind of unique language. Jesus Christ is Lord. Everybody acknowledges him in heaven. In other words, the angels, all the angelic beings recognize he's the Lord. And then it says on the earth, which means all of the human beings would recognize Jesus Christ is the Lord. And then it has this really bizarre phrase, and under the earth, which is sort of this coded language. It's not really that subtle, but it's coded for all of the forces of evil and the demonic, even they recognize he's the Lord. In fact, if you look at the gospels, the accounts of Jesus's life and ministry, most often the demons are the ones who first and most correctly recognize who Jesus is. Hey, aren't you, aren't you? get away from us. We're scared of you. You're Jesus. We've, we've heard about you. Long before everybody else is kind of sure about who Jesus is, the demons are already aware. And what Paul is saying is, the guy writing here, is he's saying, everyone will acknowledge that Jesus Christ is the Lord. But he has this kind of weird arc. With God, criminals, death, elevated above all names. Now this is the answer to the question. What is God like? Jesus. Jesus is the answer to the question, what is God like? And the question now for us, as we move sort of beyond that a little bit, is why does Paul, the, the, the author, why does he go through this little theology lesson about the identity of Jesus, about who he is? Is it merely that he wants us to sort of know a little bit more, which wouldn't be the worst thing in the world? Or is there something else that he's trying to pull or push, push at us to sort of grasp with? Maybe it's about something else. The church of Philippi, the city of Philippi, I should give you a little background. In 356 BC, a guy named Philip II discovers they got all kinds of gold in the area around Philippi. So he moves in there, starts mining the gold. And then he cleverly names the city which has all this gold after himself. Philip calls it Philippi. He's not a clever ruler, he's just naming stuff. Now, they start mining all the gold. It's no different than, like, James Irvine. But anyway, start Why is that? Is that that serious? Is that a big deal? A lot of James Irvine. I live in Irvine. Sorry if I offended you. Uh, (laughs) Go Irvine. Okay. Where was I? Oh, so he starts mining all this gold. And all the gold that's mined in Philippi funds his son's global conquest. He has a son, Philip II, named Alexander the Great. Now, Philippi begins to take on, really early on in its history, a profoundly important sort of status-conscious, wealthy society that lasts into the Roman Empire. And in the Roman Empire, in the Roman sort of society, there's five classes of citizens, five classes of men, I should be specific. The lowest of which are slaves. Then above them are what are called freedmen, which are just slaves who have purchased their own freedom. Then above them are the commoners. Above them are the equestrians, and above them are the members of the Senate, the Senators. And the way in which those five classes are delineated amongst themselves is generally by the clothing that they wear. There's like different kind of togas and emblems and stuff like that, and also by their mode of transportation. Like the equestrian class is known because they all have horses. They can afford classes. Now think about this. What kind of backwards, insane, ancient society would separate itself based... On how people dress and their mode of transportation. What crazy people would say, we're different or better than you because of the way we dress. And the things that get us from place to place make us superior or inferior to you. Isn't that just a crazy world that they lived in back then? Philippi is no different than us. And Paul is writing about this idea here that there is something we ought to consider when we consider the question, what is God like? So I want to back you up to verse 3. Philippians 2, verse 3. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And then he goes on to say, who, being in very nature God, did not consider it something to possess, to be grasped, to hold on to, but emptied himself, and so on and so forth. This whole conversation, the word same mindset is sometimes translated the same attitude as Christ. The Greek actually looks a little more like self-opinion. Paul's saying the way, hey, status conscious people in Philippi, What we have to think about is something way different. If we're actually going to be a part of a subversive group of people that's going to overturn the way the world operates, if we're going to be people who love without walls, we're going to have to think about ourselves as something different than the rest of the world sort of operates. We're going to be like Jesus, who would say, I've been given things, and I'm willing to give them up such that a greater purpose might be accomplished. The question, what is God like, shapes us powerfully. Changing the world, becoming a church in the world for the world, starts with the self-opinion of being a humble servant. You turn in your Bible to Mark 10 if you brought a Bible. The way of those who would belong to Jesus apparently has something to do with humble service. Now, in the context of what I'm going to just set you up with, Jesus has just had a conversation with a rich guy. It's a famous conversation in which he then tells the guy, it's pretty hard for rich guys to make it into the kingdom of heaven. And he uses this analogy, it's pretty famous, where he says, it's like it'd be easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle. Some of you heard the story. And all the disciples that are walking with Jesus hear this, and it says, the Bible says that they're astonished. Like, oh, well, the rich guy's blessed. God's favor is clearly on him. But you just said it's going to be really hard. So wh- what are we supposed to do? And Jesus doesn't quite answer their question exactly. But he tells them, hey, we're going to Jerusalem. All of us, we're going to go to Jerusalem. Let me tell you real quick what our plan is when we get there. Uh, I'm going to go talk to some religious leaders. They're not going to be real happy about the things I say. Uh, So they're going to mock me, beat me, spit on me. They're going to kill me on a Roman cross. Uh, Remember, this is the ultimate act. This is the most shameful thing a Jewish man could ever do, uh, pretty much. And so they're going to put me on a Roman cross. I'm going to die, and then I'm going to be raised again to life in three days. That's what he tells them the agenda is. Now I want you to notice how much they do not even, they don't, it's like they don't hear what he just said. Because look what it says in verse 35, Mark ten thirty five. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Stop right there. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. They're going to hate me, spit on me, mock me, punch me. You guys are going to be accused of kind of being with me. That's sort of subtext there. Uh, And then I'm going to die and raise again. This hasn't happened before. Raise again, back to life. Yeah, enough about you, Jesus. Um, We want you to do whatever we ask. Like, did you, hey, did you guys hear that? Did you hear what I just said? And they don't just ask a question like, hey, we're wondering if we could pick the dinner spot for tonight. Okay, James and John, your turn. I mean, it's not, this isn't the... They ask the most open-ended, bizarre genie question in the world. (laughs) Hey, we want to ask you for whatever. Will you give it to us? We just want to ask you for something we want. Can we have it? (laughs) If your kids say that, what do you, I mean, yes, you can have whatever you want. I mean, there's just no, so, but listen to what Jesus says. This is the best. So, uh, all right, verse 35 still. uh, They said, we want you to, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you, Jesus asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. In other words, we want to kind of be known as the guys who are with you. We kind of want the parade. We know you're the king. And we think that's awesome. So we kind of want to be next to you. We want the good seats at the Laker games and the floor seats. We want those. We want to kind of have a parade every once. Not a big parade, but like, you know, Rose Parade size probably honoring us. Just kind of be with you because that's awesome. And, And there's this kind of... Trying to garner a share of glory that belongs to God for themselves. Verse 38. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? We can, they answered. Sure, whatever that is, we want that too. (laughs) Uh, What's in the cup? It's probably delicious. I mean, they don't, there's no, the cup Jesus is speaking about is a cup of suffering. And he's not talking about a baptism like, I'm going to go sit in a jacuzzi and who else wants to join me in there. He's talking about being not just sort of sprinkled with a little bit of trouble. He's talking about being plunged into calamity. Submerged. Baptism is what that word means. You want to drink the cup of suffering and be submerged into suffering? Can you guys handle that? Sure. We sure can, Jesus. That sounds awesome. Verse 39. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with. Now you can imagine, until they figure this out, they're like, yeah, we get to have the baptism in the whatever's in the cup, that's awesome. Verse 40, but to sit on my right hand or my left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. Now if you know the story, if, you've, if you can advance the story a little bit in your own mind, you remember that Jesus dies on a cross right next to two other guys, criminals. Like, so Jesus is lumped in with other criminals. This is an incredibly shameful sort of picture. And these guys don't yet fully realize what's being sort of said. And now the other disciples begin to hear what's going on, verse 41. And they get a little upset about it. Look what it says, verse 41. When the, other, when the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Now, part of us would think, are they going, look, James, John. People skills. Guys, I mean, he just told you he's going to go die on the cross. There's going to be some, you know, painful mocking and spitting on, all that kind of stuff. How dare you guys ask that question of Jesus? That's just, (laughs) we don't do that here. I'm sorry. None of us would ever, none of the ten of us would ever do that. These guys, I'm not even sure why they're here. I mean, you just kind of get that kind of like. But the answer isn't that they're asking that. They're not, they're not, they don't chastise James and John. They're indignant for another reason. And we get the clue as to why they're indignant in the next verse. Verse 42, Jesus called them together and said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. I'm going to stop right there. In other words, Jesus doesn't say to the ten, or address James and James and John, or James and uh, John, and say, "Hey, you guys, James and John, did you guys hear these?" The ten, they're right. That's a right. You know what? You guys are out of line. Be more like them. James and John come up. And Jesus pulls everybody else together after the disciples are indignant, indignant, indignant. That's hard for me to say, indignant. He pulls them together because he says, everybody seems to be losing out of what's supposed to happen here. You guys want the same thing that these guys do. And so he pulls them together and he says, you guys know how the rulers of the Gentiles do this stuff? They use their power and they lord it over each other. And they want high officials, these high officials want to use authority over all their people. But among you, it says in one translation, it should be quite different. Not so with you, he says in verse 43. Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. Now Jesus isn't saying, he's not saying there's no greatness here. We have no greatness in the kingdom. He doesn't say there will be no gold stars, there will be no honoring, there will be no, what he says is, the way in which we find greatness isn't going to be the same way that the world does it. The world does their greatness thing way differently than we will. If you want to be great, serve. If you want to be truly great, be a slave for everybody else, then you'll be great. Great. He says, enough of this trying to figure out and try to, you know, get your sort of selves into positions of power so you can lord it over people. James and John and the rest of the disciples, really what they're saying is, we want one oppressive, selfish regime of the Romans to be replaced by another one with a different face that says James and John on it or the other ten disciples. Jesus says, that's not the way we do it here. It's going to be much different. Remember, we become like the objects of our worship. The Romans had a way of worshiping that honored themselves and honored power and selfishness. And Jesus says, not so among you. And in case they were looking for an escape clause, like, Jesus, you're kind of, why'd you exclude yourself? Like as if Jesus is like, everybody go and be a slave and a servant. I'm going, I got a little condo in Maui. I'm hanging out. Call me when everything else is done. I'll be around. Come visit me maybe, you know. Jesus says in verse 45, for even the Son of Man, which is a title Jesus often used for himself, did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. He says, even me, the one sent to be among you, God among you, even me. He didn't come to be served. He came to to serve and to give his life up for freedom for everybody else. You see, when we ask the question, who is God like, or what is God like, we get a picture that informs how we would then also be. The picture Jesus gives us of what is God like is one in which he is a humble servant, one in which he calls his own people, those who would change the world, who would love without walls, to be humble Servants and the trouble of being a humble servant is that when you choose to act like a humble servant, people will actually treat you like that. It's a little tough for us who live in modern day Philippi, so to speak. I want to put something on the screen. Here's just a just a way to consider a few things we've been talking about. On the left, you have sort of this idea of the way the world functions. Which says you've been given rights and powers and freedoms and you should cling to them at all costs. And then it says underneath there that the best example of power and authority and effectiveness in the world is that people would serve you. The world says, you know what? You got to protect everything that belongs to you, including your emotions, including being exposed in some way or another. You got to be guarded you got to not let people in because they might try to take you over because you're cynical and afraid of them. So you've got to guard yourself. And then it says, you know, probably the most, clearly the most important thing in the entire world is my own self-interest. That among anything else that has to be protected, it's my own self-interest. Nobody else really at the end of the day matters. It's about you. Protect yourself. Get what you can. Garner for yourself whatever you might be able to. Only the other side of this equation, the, the left side of the screen, about something much more challenging. We've been given rights so that we might even, if need be, surrender them, that there might be a greater purpose accomplished. That we would take on the position of a humble servant and people might actually even treat us as though we are one. That we would move towards vulnerability and sharing in our own lives, even at the risk of being wounded. And we would be sacrificial, not just self-centered. I want you to look at those for a minute. I want you to just think for a second. Which is the one that God is sort of poking at you a little bit with? How is he sort of provoking, challenging you in? And while you're doing that, I'm going to give you a sort of example of my own life. I have this, um, I've discovered recently that I have a, a, um, more than I thought, a need for and a belief in my own entitlement to things. And the way I realize I've got this is I, I complete this sentence in some capacity. All I want is, with about that tone, or I just want blank. All I want is blank, and I just want blank. Now, all of the, the, whatever that blank is for me might range from something incredibly superficial, like, look, all I want is, which is another way of saying, it, I'm just entitled to have, aren't I? All I want is, there's a brand new phone that just came out, kind of big news recently. All I want is... To all the way, it's uh, to the middle ground of sort of. I just all I want is my kids. All I want are my kids to sort of do better in school and sports and everything else because it'll make me look good. It's all the way up to all I want is my marriage to be like that, or all I want is to have enough money to do those things, or all I want is that really too much to ask. And what what I'm realizing that's doing in my own life, the more and more I repeat that sentence in so many words is I'm actually saying I have some rights and I'm entitled to some things. And my rights entitle me to some things which entitle me to more things and so on and so forth. What is it for you? How is God looking at you going, you want to change the world? Because we're going to be loving the world without walls. We're going to be the church in the world for the world and it will be difficult and it requires humble servants. this is a big deal which of those things is God going this is an area that I want to shape in you a little bit let me do this as you kind of capture those in your own mind a little bit why don't we pray let's submit these things to God the ones that are the one that is the most sort of potent for you Jesus with our eyes closed And while we could probably find a number of things in each of those categories, God, would there be one that you would bring to our attention right now? Would you speak to us, Holy Spirit? Lord, would it be, for some of us, a surrendering of rights, a willingness to serve, an exposed kind of vulnerability in our relationships? Would it be a selfishness, sacrifice kind of conversation. Lord, above all, we recognize that you came, that you would ransom many by your own death. That's because of your love that we do not have to try to earn anything about your love. That we are rescued to be a part of your family. And that, God, because of your outpouring of humble love and your great sacrifice, that we get to be people who are shaped into being like the object of our worship. Lord, it's our desire to see the world made different. God, would you take whatever it is that's keeping us from that end and work in us? Would you speak to us? Would you challenge us? Would you reshape us? that we might be people who take seriously what it means to belong to you and to worship you, Jesus. So Lord, we, in our own life, we live out the question, what is God like by being humble servants? Lord, we sing these, this response, our prayer set to music, knowing and wrestling with the question, What is God like? And saying with our words and our own heart orientation toward you, it's Jesus. It's Jesus.